listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. I'm Lauren Spaniola. Today my guest is Tammy Simon. Tammy is a senior teacher and meditation instructor with Dharma Ocean. She's been meditating for more than 25 years and has received intensive training under direction of Dr. Reggie Ray, and he, who is the founder and spiritual director of Dharma Ocean. And Tammy is also the founder of Sounds True, a multimedia publisher of spiritual wisdom. And that was actually just one of the tracks that I just played. And I believe Sounds True has just celebrated its 25th year anniversary. Welcome, Tammy Simon. Thank you. So how did your spiritual journey begin? Let's start there. Oh, my. (laughs) Well, I would say I became uh, conscious of being on a spiritual journey as a teenager and slept with books by Herman Hesse under my pillow and definitely had a feeling that I wanted to know what the was going on, what was uh, just happening in the purpose in, in being alive, if there even was a purpose. And I think I felt quite alienated from my family mm-hmm. and from the goals and values of society and thought I would go to college and be a philosopher and that as a philosophy major, I would be able to delve into more of the questions about the meaning of life. And I was pretty quickly thrown into the religion department, and at least in traditional academia in the mid-1980s, the idea that you were looking for personal answers and looking to inquire in a personal way didn't belong in the philosophy department. That was much more about abstract ideas. So it was really in the religion department at Swarthmore College that I delved in deep, that I first learned to meditate. There was a professor there named Gunapala Dharmasiri who was on a Fulbright scholarship and was teaching Buddhism and existentialism. And he was the person who first taught meditation and was my first introduction to the Dharma. And then how did it evolve from there? Well, I soon left Swarthmore College (laughs) uh, and became so deeply immersed that I couldn't quite make sense of the idea of getting a quote-unquote degree in mysticism. It seemed to me that most of the mystics that I was studying that were worth their salt had in some way left the traditional fold and found their own way, found their way through the desert, found their way into themselves. And the idea of being in some kind of academic, safe shelter uh, just didn't make sense to me. And so I went to Sri Lanka, which is where this professor was from, and I lived with him and his family there for six months and then traveled up through India and Nepal. So I was 20 years old at the time and spent a year traveling, going to various temples and pilgrimage sites and got deeply involved with the study of Vipassana meditation as taught by a teacher of Sri Goenka. Mm -hmm. And he's a Burmese meditation master. And I went on several of these long retreats, meaning they were were 10 days long, but from 5 a.m. till 10 p.m. each day, you were in meditation in silence. And I did a a sequence of these 10-day retreats as a 21-year-old, and that was really, I think, my deep dive, exiting college and entering a, a different path in life, really. And so how were you feeling at that point? 
honestly, I was um, kind of went off a, a type of edge, if you will. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is by the time I came back from my travels in India, Sri Lanka, and Nepal, I uh, had pretty much stopped speaking. I only weighed 90 pounds, and, which is quite thin for someone who's 5'7". And I also had hepatitis that I'd gotten from, um, you know, when I came back to the United States, my parents looked at me and was like, what had, has become of our talkative, I mean, I was called Big Mouth growing up in my family. And so here, the fact that I think that I wasn't speaking, I think, was the thing that was the most shocking. And I, I couldn't really return to the life that I had been on. My parents begged me, you know, okay, you took a year abroad, fine, come back finish college, uh, continue with your life. I couldn't really return to that life, but I also didn't know where I might fit in. And so it was a a definite um, gap in my life, if you will, meaning I had always been a pretty optimistic and achievement-oriented person. And at that point in my life, I was just plain, kind of at zero, if you will, Meaning, I just didn't. I knew that the practice of meditation that I had learned was the most important thing to me, and that it was the most important thing to me because it gave me an interior way to access something that I could know was true, where there was nothing between me and the knowing. Meaning, there wasn't a, a person or a book or anything. It was direct, and I had confidence in that. So that was the one thing I knew. And I really, when I was in India, I devoted my life to that. I didn't know what that meant, but it was the idea of this true prayer, that in this true prayer I said, you know, I want to serve this teaching, this practice, this capacity, and introduce as many people as possible to it. But, of course, I had no idea what that meant. And when I came back to the United States and my parents said, well, if you're not going to finish college then we're not going to continue to support me. I thought this was a totally reasonable response for them to have. I would have had the same response. (laughs) And then I was on my own. Right. And so are you the type of person that just needed to know the answers at that time in your life? You know, I think even more important than, quote, unquote, knowing answers Mm -hmm. was this idea that there was a process that I could lean into. that I didn't need to see a therapist necessarily, not that there's anything wrong with seeing therapists, but as a teenager, my parents had sent me to plenty, and it was the idea that someone else had the answers for me. And I think that's what I was responding to, Mm. and I think that's what was so important to me was that I had found a methodology where I could uh, quiet myself and find my own sense of, of guidance and my own sense of belonging. Really. What, what, what were your next steps in that journey for you? Well, my next step was to come out to Boulder, Colorado, and uh, I was under quite a bit of pressure to just... How did you know to go to Boulder? Sorry to interrupt you. No, it's okay. You know, it, it's, I mean, there's a lot of details here, but just to uh, skip over some of them, which is... Yeah. So Swarthmore College, the college that I was dropping out of, uh, is located outside of Philadelphia. I was walking the streets of Philadelphia kind of endlessly one day thinking I don't I have no idea what my next move is and there was a meditation center and I thought well I'll just walk in and see if they'll let me sit in this center you know you can imagine someone's just sort of walking the streets after four or five miles you're tired you see a sign that says you know we teach meditation 
just walk in and think, well, God, at least I could sit down someplace inside for a bit before I keep walking, you know, find a cafe or something. Mm-hmm. And as I'm waiting to see if they'll let me meditate in the shrine room of this center, there's a brochure for Naropa University out in Boulder, Colorado, and it says we teach meditation and psychology and how to make sense of meditative experiences. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And I saw the mountains of Boulder, which reminded me of the mountains of Nepal, and I had loved that part of my travels probably the most in terms of a sense of connecting to the land. And I thought, okay, I'll go out to Boulder. So that was my next move. I came out to Boulder, but I really couldn't be in school. There was something about academic study at that point that um, didn't work for me, and I think it because it was too abstract, even in a situation like Naropa. So I left Naropa a few weeks later, and then I was truly out on my own. And my father died soon after, and I received a small inheritance at the time of his death of about $50,000. And it was that money that became the seed of Sounds True. And what I knew was that I wanted to see if I could employ myself, if I could take the money that I inherited and make more money from it, and if possibly I could, this prayer alive in my heart, the prayer that I had said when I was traveling, in India, which was to serve the practice of meditation. And that was really the initial concept behind Sounds True, was to disseminate spiritual wisdom. And it was an idea that I could continue my own learning, the learning that I wasn't finding in an academic setting, that I could find directly by publishing spoken word audio programs as well as uh, music like the music that you played and other kinds of teachings, video teachings, that would help people find their own direct path inward, but would also keep my own learning alive. Okay, and if we could uh, just segue into Naropa University, and I would imagine then that's your first introduction to Reggie Ray, which is the Chogyam Trungpa lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Actually, you know, believe it or not, at the time, I was completely disinterested. Oh. uh, Yeah, I mean, just curiously enough. I was completely disinterested in Tibetan Buddhism. I had been trained in this very strict, almost boot camp style form of meditation, and I saw what was happening at Naropa and the quote-unquote crazy wisdom, meaning just the whole, I mean, this is now, you know, this is the mid-1980s, and it was the time when uh, the Naropa Poetics Department was raging loud, and it was a, a wild and... Um, uh, interesting scene, but not one that I felt drawn to at all. I was much more of a kind of natural monastic, if you will, just uh, an introverted, quiet uh, person in many ways, and I wasn't drawn to it, even, even the least. And I um, I didn't meet Chogim Trimpa Rinpoche at that time. I knew nothing of Reggie, and so I only lasted a, a few weeks there. And then, as I said, I mentioned I started Sounds True, And in the process of running Sounds True, I met many different spiritual teachers that I studied with over the years. And I spent quite some time studying with Thich Nhat Hanh and then with a Kundalini meditation teacher, a woman named Anandi Ma. Mm -hmm. And in the course of all this, was sort of cobbling together my own path, if you will. Right. And there were good and bad things about that. Uh, I think the bad part, or I don't know if you want to say the bad part, but the thing that I knew was that I knew that if, if you really sat me down and asked me 
to tell you the truth about how my spiritual life was unfolding. I would tell you that I had a lot of pieces, but I was also just a little bit lost. Mm. And I think that uh, when I met Reggie, which was about nine years ago, he came into Sounds True as an author, as an author we were going to publish. Right, I see. No, I mean, I didn't know anything special about him, didn't have any idea that we would have a particular connection. It was just another project. And, you know, we do 50, 60 projects a year. Yes. And Reggie came in, and we were going to record an audio series on Buddhist Tantra. And quite honestly, I didn't really even know very much about what Buddhist Tantra was about. Mm -hmm. And Reggie came into the studio, and what I noticed first was that he seemed pretty serious. And there was a way that very immediately he cut through a kind of casualness on my part and communicated to me that what we were doing together and the recording was sacred and was a true event that required not so much my... I don't know if exactly you'd say sarcasm, but you know something, you know, working with authors, I think there's a way that I was a little glib or something. But he created a completely different atmosphere in the studio. And we recorded this series of both teachings and guided meditations. took us about 10 days in the studio together. And at one point, Reggie said to me, so tell me a little bit about your practice. And I said, well, you know, I've sort of been an off-and-on Vipassana meditator and He was like, well, describe to me exactly how you meditate. Mm. And I explained that, you know, what I I basically did was work with my breath and with body sensations and that I would return to the object of meditation if I found myself distracted and thinking or off in a story that I would return to the object and that that's what I was doing. And he looked at me and said, so how long have you been doing that, Tammy? Uh (laughs) And I said, well, you know, I think I've been doing this now for, you know, is it 15 plus years? And he he was like, well, how's it working for you? I was like, well, the the truth is uh, I I often feel not that interested in the meditation practice. And he said, the thing is, just sitting with you, I can see that the space of your being, your natural mind is so much bigger than the practice that you're doing. You're actually putting yourself into a smaller space when you meditate. And, you know, the idea in doing a concentration practice like this is that it's a a sort of diving board into bigger and vaster ways of resting. But you need to release the concentration 100% on the object at a certain point and start opening up to space, to everything. And I was like, excuse me? Start Mm -hmm. opening up to space? And it was the first time that I had ever heard that instruction. And granted, this is a pretty simple instruction, but that moment and that one instruction changed my practice life. And, yeah, Reggie said, you know, once you become concentrated, that's how you calm your discursive mind, and that's step one. And then step two is you can start relaxing and opening and opening and opening, and then thoughts arise within a context of open space. And at the end, after he gave me this instruction, he said, you know, tell me how it works, check back. So after the 10 days of being together in the studio, I said, you know, look, Reggie, here's the thing. I don't want to become a Tibetan Buddhist. I'm not interested in necessarily working with a spiritual teacher or anything like that. But do you think that we could just check in every few months and I could talk to you about my practice? 
And he looked at me and he said a sentence that uh, I'll always remember. And he said, Tammy, you will get the Dharma you need. And it may not sound as I say it like such a dramatic sentence. Right. But the way that I felt when I heard it was very dramatic. Because the way that I felt, uh, quite honestly, and as I said, I know this may sound dramatic, but I actually did feel in that moment that my life was um, being saved in a certain point. Mm. That it was taking a kind of turn that it had yet to take. And that up until that point, even though I'd met a lot of teachers and that I'd heard so many different ideas and read so many different books and had a lot of information, I did not have a relationship with somebody who looked me straight in the eyes and said, you'll get the Dharma you need, you'll get the instructions you need. In a sense, uh, I, I will, we will together go all the way home. And that was what I felt in that encounter. And I, you know, walked out of the building where Sounds True is and just started walking outside and felt this incredible buoyancy as if, as if my life had turned a corner that would ne- I would never go back. That's really beautiful. We're talking today to meditation instructor Tammy Simon. Um, so at this point, you've uh, connected with Reggie Ray, and I was curious to know uh, when you started to really embody this lineage. <laughs> That's also an interesting question. Well, for one, I, I think that um, it's a process that I'm still in, okay. so I don't think that it's uh, there's an end point where one says, you know, now I've fully embodied okay. this lineage. Um, I think of... The term lineage in many uh, different dimensions, you, uh, it sounds to me like you're speaking of it in a historical dimension, meaning as a set of teachings that are passed down uh, person to person. Correct. And I think that's um, one part of it. But I also think it's uh, a type of signature of awakening, and that I think in that sense when you said, that, when did you begin to embody it, I think even when I was reading Herman Hess books, as I talked about, and feeling that longing as a teenager, I was touching, in a way, the the longing inside of myself that was a kind of connection to this lineage, a connection to my own uh, deepest longing for fulfillment, and a kind of fulfillment that could only be found in infinity. And so I think that relationship, the thread of connection between me and practicing lineage, as it's called, the lineage of Shogun Trimpa Rinpoche that can be traced back to the siddhas of ancient India, that that thread of connection is very deep within me, and that meeting Reggie started uh, really activating that and that then the process since then has been one of embodying it more and more. Okay. What do you think? Do you, do you mean by your question? I mean, there was a point, there was a formal point where I chose right. Reggie, Reggie formally to be my teacher. Sure. And so I, I'm not sure, is that what you're yes. inquiring about? Because yes. that, that is a kind of passing through a gate mm-hmm. or passing a, a boundary. Mm-hmm. And in this, tradition, there are three different vows that we take uh, initially, and the first vow is a a vow of taking refuge, and when we take refuge, we declare that 
what is most important to us is this path of inner awakening, that we won't put our chips, we won't put our life force into external gratification, but that we recognize that our, our true home is this inner infinite space and that that's what we'll focus on. And then the next vow, the second vow is the Bodhisattva vow, that we're doing this not for ourselves alone, not for our individual freedom solely, that our individual freedom then becomes a kind of fountain that feeds this fresh water to so many others. And the Bodhisattva vow, we dedicate ourselves to other beings, to being available to people and to a life of service. And then the third vow is the Samaya vow. And in the taking of the third vow, which is something that I did in 2005, that's when we commit to a particular teacher, to Reggie Ray, to this particular lineage, and to carrying on the lineage in our life in a formal way. So if that's what you mean, I I took that vow in 2005. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even though your answering uh, is, is good, that's right. So if I asked you if you were a Buddhist, do you consider yourself a Buddhist? You know, I mean, the truth is you could look at it from different sides. From one side, clearly I'm a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. From another side, I don't really relate to that idea of being called a Buddhist. Right. And so I would say no, and yet they're both true. Right. So it just kind of depends which way you want to look at it. The part of me that relates to it is that uh, I care deeply about quite a bit of Buddhist philosophy. Mm-hmm. I've studied it, uh, and um, it's been so meaningful to me mm. in my life. And this tradition that I'm a part of is a Tibetan Buddhist lineage. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, clearly, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> I think the reason that I don't relate to it is that I've been running a company now for 25 years. Uh, we have a new tagline that's called Many Voices, One Journey. Right. And I believe very firmly that the essential truths of the discovery of this pure water of inspiration and care and generosity is available to people in many different traditions Mm -hmm. and even outside of, and that I, I relate to that essential teaching. And I don't just find it in Buddhism at all, and I take um, great pleasure in seeing the connections with other traditions. And I think that we're in a time when a articulation of essential truths is so important and that it builds so many bridges between people, and that's a, a work that I'm really committed to. Right. Yes, and I and I notice that. I guess I, as I go through your weekly podcast with Insights at the Edge, um, which I really enjoy listening to, by the way, um, and the recent one you did with Andrew Harvey was just absolutely brilliant. I want to ask you a question. Why do you think? What do you think this lineage is about? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you, know what, think, you know what Nanda yeah. Zip said. He said that it was the path of grieving, which I thought huh. was really interesting. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. What, why did he say that? I'd be curious. I don't know. I can't remember, to be honest. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was going to say it's the path of free fall. Oh, okay. Meaning there's uh, no place to stand. There's no ground. There's no reference point. Oh, wow. There's nothing that you can actually hold on to, which is why 
when you ask, am I a Buddhist? Well, you know, if I say yes, I'm holding on to something. If I say no, well, I'm also creating a position of holding on to not being one. Right. What am I? I mean, it's kind of undefinable. I don't need to define it. Mm-hmm. I'm a, a being of infinite space that includes everything that's arising in its confinement and limitation, including the grieving, including the ecstasy. So it's all inclusive without needing to pick any reference point as the place of perspective. There's no need for one perspective. Well, then that sort of gives or brings the question of having to choose a particular path to go deep into your journey. Yeah, and for me that feels like it feels very similar to the choice I've made in my personal life to be in a committed relationship right. with the idea that I want to discover the absolute depth of love and connection and uh, intimacy. Mm-hmm. And for me, at least, I believe that doing that with one person, uh, there's a way that I can go deeper than I could if I was simultaneously trying to have relationships with lots of people. Sure. And so when it comes to having that relationship with a path and with a teacher, I think there's a similarity that, for me, there's a a kind of depth that can be reached by that particularity and that actually the universality is found through the particularity, if that makes sense, meaning... I think at first, before I met Reggie, I was interested in universality, but it it ended up feeling kind of surface in a way. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that, but I had a feeling about it. And now, because I have this particularity, I can appreciate all of these other traditions from the inside out because of the way that I know it in myself with one person. So the specificity gives me an appreciation of everything else. You know, when you were going through your vows, did you ever uh, fear it? Did you ever feel that you were losing something? Yeah. Well, I mean, the biggest thing I lost Mm -hmm. on this path Mm -hmm. was my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm kind of not kidding. And what I mean is when you say there's no reference point, there's no, like, right opinion. Right. And judgment about Mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And I've been trained as an analytical person and I value critical thinking and I would say I'm a pretty judgmental person just by sort of bent and certainly by my upbringing and education Right. and to actually say not that those opinions and thoughts and judgments and critical thinking not that all that's not there but that it's no longer driving my life it it no longer um, tells me how to relate to people or what's actually happening it's just, it's you know, the the way that I think of it is that it's in the back seat of the car instead of the front seat of the car, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. definitely used to be the driver. Right, definitely. I see. It definitely was the driver of right. my life. So that was a really big thing to lose, and I lost that even before I took the vow for Reggie to be my teacher. Mm-hmm. It, there was no way that I could really progress on this path after a certain point because there were too many just things that didn't add up. Do you know? Right. Like this doesn't add up, that doesn't add up. And then it was finally like, what if I just stop trying to add it up and just let things be open? Hmm, don't know about that. I don't have to come to a conclusion that, you know, this is wrong or this is not the way it should be or I don't have to, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I know exactly like, huh, what I mean. Yeah. I have a question about that, but I don't have to come to a conclusion about that. Mm-hmm. 
that was a very different way of being, and I think it um, was a really uh, huge change in the leading energy of my life, no longer being a mental one, but being a heart-based one. Right. Well, and I mean, that takes a, well, I don't know, I think some of us quite some time to really lose that, because there's a real freedom and not wanting to know the conclusion, judgment, and so on and so forth. I'm not sure, quite sure I'm following you. Well, I think you, you were just saying you you were lose, that you lost your mind, right? Yeah. And that you yep. no longer needed to have conclusion. Yeah. You know, coming from a heart-based place. Yeah. And I think that takes an incredible amount of time to meditate or work through that process. Yeah. Uh, or, at, you know, it, it, it was very odd that I was at a retreat. Yes. And it was at a, a datan, which is a month-long right. meditation retreat. Mm-hmm. And I was there for a, a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I don't remember all of the details, but the gist of it was that Reggie and I seriously disagreed about something. Right. And I was convinced that I was right. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. So the question was, okay. could I keep going and just could I just let it go? Could I just let it go? Right. Very interesting. And, well, I mean, I, I literally... Um, I, I sat in the meditation hall and cried for about three days and thought, you know, I knew I would have to give up so much, but I didn't know I would have to give up this part of me, this part that I, you know, had reified in a certain way. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. I mean, I never had said what's really on the altar of my life mm. is my mind, mm-hmm. but it was. Right. Let's just talk about when you first began instructing. Like, how did that all come about? Well, you know, I think as you can tell from this conversation, I I feel, especially when I'm um, sitting with Reggie, I I often feel tremendous gratitude. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've said repeatedly over the years in our one-to-one interviews is, what could I do to help you? How could I I be of service? What could I do to help? Mm. Just as something spontaneously that would arise in me that I'd want to say towards the end of the interview. Mm -hmm. And at one point when I said that, he said, there's only one thing, Tammy, you can do at this point, and that is to start teaching. It's, it, I can't, he, he said, I can't teach you anymore until you start teaching, and you're going to learn so much from teaching. And this is your next step. This is what, this, you know, you asked me what you can do. This is what you can do. And I said, well, you know, I would have waited, Reggie, until I was further along because yeah. I have a sense of my own growth process and um, just how much I'm, I'm learning and going through as a person. And he said, I know, you know, and it's my job to kick you out of the nest. And what I didn't know when he said that comment about how much I would learn from teaching, uh, I had no idea how profound that was Mm -hmm. because I I have learned so much from Mm -hmm. teaching. Mm -hmm. And there's a way that in the process of teaching I'm able to articulate all kinds of things that I need to hear, and this may sound strange, that I, I actually need to hear, and it's said in just the way that I can hear it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so there's a listening to the lineage, really, and the lineage then speaks through me, and it speaks to the people in the room, and it also speaks to me, mm. if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Um, I know that uh, recently you just did a residential retreat here on Salt Spring Island. And um, I didn't get the opportunity to go, but I did begin to listen to some of the um, footage. And one of the things that I love the way you started the retreat by asking for help. 
which I thought was really beautiful. I'm just wondering if you could just expand on that a little bit and why you decided to, to, to start the retreat with that ritual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that I've uh, really discovered when I just said the lineage speaking through is that teaching in this tradition is really a kind of mediumship, and I, I, that's a strong word. Yes, it I, is. And, and, yet I, and yet I mean it. Right. And what I mean by that is that there is a merging with a great infinite field of intelligence and wakefulness that then speaks. There is an invocation of that help, and that I actually think that even if we're not teaching, if we're simply sitting on the cushion, or sitting in a chair, or just plain listening in our lives, we can invoke and ask for that kind of merging with higher dimensions of being, higher dimensions of our own greater being, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. if you want to use that kind of language. doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether you think that the merging is happening with dimensions that are part of you or outside of you. It doesn't matter where you draw this. I mean, talk about a reference point that's truly illusory. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the idea that as part of the meditation practice, we're moving outside of our conventional sense of self and into a much, much, much more expanded sense of being. Okay. And that's really the help. When I say we're asking for help, we're getting outside of this conventional personhood that we walk around with that's mostly a mental construction and we're starting to connect to a a true sense of vastness right this is a body-based meditation when you we start you know with uh, body-based scanning and such and I was curious to know how the unzipping of the back of the body and descending into the earth how that relates to the actual teachings of this lineage uh, I'm not sure I know what you mean. I mean, why, why body? Why, right, yeah. Well, you know, when when Reggie first started um, uh, working with me, he emphasized the body from the very beginning. And I think that was part of the reason I was so drawn to his work. And when I mentioned earlier that he asked in the studio, how long have you been basically doing a concentration practice? And uh, his comment to me was that sometimes people spend decades meditating but not transforming and that one of the things that he's really been investigating was why might that be so why might it be so that somebody could have a and and of course i've seen this i've seen this in so many people and i saw it in myself too so you're spending all this time meditating but is there a real change happening and i believe that the change in us happens when our entire physical structure our soma our actual cells are included when our spiritual practice, our meditation, is not a mental exercise. It's not happening just sort of in space where we're helping ourselves think different thoughts while our body is all tensed up and uh, holding things, that our entire unconscious life, our entire shadow life lives in our bodies, which means our karma lives in our bodies. And the practice of meditation actually accelerates the coming to awareness of our karma, the flowering of our karma, and it does so if we're embodied while we're practicing. So when we do something like lying down and we start scanning the body and then we start opening the spaces in the body, we're actually releasing hidden 
material inside of us, early complexes that formed from the pre-verbal phases of our life, you know, from before we were four or five years old, things that are quite hidden from our normal consciousness, and they start surfacing, and then we can look at them. And in that sense, I understand Nanda's comment, the path of grieving, in that there's often a lot of grief mm-hmm. along with other stuck feelings, potentially stuck rage, also quite a, a, a bit of stuck ecstasy in my experience as well. <laughs> yeah, meaning it's not it's not all hard and difficult things. There's sure. also quite a lot of light that has not been experienced that's also released, mm-hmm. but that it's all accessed physically. That's where our that is our unconscious. Okay. Um, through Sounds True, you've had the opportunity uh, to interview many people. And the other teacher is Pema Children. And I was curious to know what the differences were. I don't really want to word it that way, but what you learned from Pema through Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Well, you know, my, my relationship with Pema is, is just more like my relationship with the Sounds True author in that we publish their material and I, I've read her books and listened to her audio. Whereas I've really been trained in this tradition with Reggie. Right. So in, in a way, it's, it's incomparable. Right, and okay. So I don't know if I can really make a comparison. Right, fair enough. I just wanted to invite you to a question of what is the meaning of life? Yeah, wow. <laughs> First of all, thank you for the question. You're welcome. And maybe you could also add where you are, you know, in your journey today, whatever you want to share on that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I I don't feel that concerned with the meaning of life, hmm. which is interesting in and of itself. Okay. Meaning I think when you, you know, when you asked me about the beginning of the spiritual search, that was the kind of question that was in my mind. Right. And I guess now I feel like life itself is so awesome, so brimming with glitter and experience and potential in every second and that it, it, it doesn't have to be any more, doesn't have to be any secondary meaning mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it it is a uh, tremendous adventure. Okay, and I guess this is the place that where you are at the present time within yourself and growing all the time, mm-hmm. loving more and uh, being more and more surprised. What's actually surprised you um, on this particular path? Oh my gosh, golly! <laughs> <laughs> I I think I'm surprised by range and depth of experience of life. And that includes everything. Mm. It includes everything. It's not one-sided. Right. That's why when you know we were talking about the path of grieving, uh, I, I would say it's you know equally. And this is what I think is so wonderful: the path of ecstasy and the path of grieving. Right. Just to use two words, you could use whichever ones you wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's that wholeness that I think that all-inclusiveness, which is personally so important to me because it's real nothing's left out and what is uh, so surprising to me is continual discovery of something new so what do you think you've learned about control and control over our lives we don't have any (laughs) seriously this is the conclusion that you've come up with well we don't have a conclusion right (laughs) no i would say we have zero control 
like absolutely we actually it's, it's actually zero okay well, i mean that's probably extreme okay there it's not that there are, i mean there are choices and blah, blah. I, I don't know I, I i would say oh good yeah well if you want to expand though for listeners <laughs> you're welcome to do that i would say that the the more i live Mm-hmm. in that place of having no control, yes. that that's also where the surprises come from. Wow. And let's off with just uh, end off with a little chat about Sounds True and what's happening, what's new with Sounds True in the next few years, do you think? Well, I think the whole digital world has given us the opportunity to, uh, as you mentioned, the podcast series that I host uh, at soundstrue.com mm-hmm. is you know an hour-long interview with all kinds of spiritual teachers, but we're also hosting online events and online courses, and because of the digital reach, can connect to an international audience, and I think that's really what's exciting about what's happening these days at Soundstrue. Great. Well, congratulations on 25 years. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Thanks for asking uh, very penetrating and real questions. I appreciate it. It's wonderful. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I actually think that we need more than an hour. <laughs> so I wanted to sort of cover a little bit of everything and kind of get a, a taste of um, who Tammy Simon is. And I just wanted to thank you for making the time from your home to connect with us today in Vancouver. And I really appreciate you as a person. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.